My name is Tony Hunt, and so if you are new, we welcome you here. This is a great church to be a part of. It's a familial church, and uh, we love to laugh. We love to uh, listen to the Word of God. We love to sing and worship to God, and we love to invest in the next generation that is growing up in our halls uh, as we speak, and so that's the earmarks of this church, and we hope that you'll consider being a part of us. At this time, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, To give a little context, if you haven't been in the services the last few weeks, we are beginning, we began a series uh, a couple weeks ago uh, called Post Tenebras Lux, which is Latin for after darkness light. That phrase in Latin was the motto of the Reformation. The Reformation began, or at least the way we celebrate its beginning, was when Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517, posted the 95 Theses on a door of the Wittenberg, Germany church. He posted these 95 Theses as an opportunity to encourage the church to change. There was a need of a reformation, a transformation of the church, and those 95 points that were on there were an encouragement to the whole church to see change from within. Luther himself, being a Catholic priest, wanted to see the Catholic Church to experience a renewal of God's love. Now, why is it that they referred to this season of time and this motto as being after darkness light? Well, it's because when the church became part of the Roman Empire, literally it became the official religion of the Roman Empire in A.D. 324, that from that point to 1517, the church was led from Rome. And in that aspect, the, the gospel was able to flourish because Rome controlled most, of the, controlled most of the known world. And so it was very helpful to the gospel spread and, and people hearing about Jesus. But over time, a few hundred years after that, the papacy or the leadership of that church began to corrupt. And several decisions happened during that time that led to what we know in the history of mankind as the Dark Ages or the dark era of the church as well as culture. And what happened in that season of time was that the leadership of the church made an edict that said, we're only going to speak in the church services, the gathering of the people, we're only going to speak in Latin. And we're only going to print the scriptures. We're only going to make them available in Latin. And that is what we were going to tell our parishioners to stay with. So their Bibles were in Latin. They were told to, they were taught in Latin. And therefore, that was all they heard from when it comes to spiritual teaching was Latin. Here's the problem. It was not the spoken language of the people. It was not the known language. And so for several hundred years, the people's understanding of, of who God is and what God may want of us was only understood by whatever conversations could take place between them and the priesthood. Because otherwise, in the teaching of the word, it was only taught in Latin. They, they wouldn't know. So unless there was a, some kind of sidebar teaching and an interaction at a confessional booth, they would not know the understandings of the word of God. So therefore, they were truly in the dark and did not understand or know who God was and what he thought of mankind and what he was doing on behalf of mankind. 
the church indeed became dark. And so one of the things that, that Luther was advocating for was the church to begin to speak the word in the common language of the people. And eventually to translate that word into the common language of the people. And then in the 95 Theses, he also then was sharing some of the things that the people, the common people, when he posted it on that door, those common words, they had no idea some of the things he was saying in there came directly out of Scripture. He was telling them something that they needed to know, but it was also, it was also a challenge to the church. Therefore, the priesthood and the papacy. Last week we looked at that the first three points of those 95 points was about repentance. That true faith, that is, that is a faith that saves, a belief that saves is a faith that shows there has been a change of the individual. There is a changing faith. That they started in a place where all of us begin, which is we're all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory. We are all in need of help. And that at some point, there was a change of mind, which is what the word repentance means, which is a change of the whole being, that we turn our back on what we were, and we look towards God, and then God begins to change us. He works and radically changes who we are through his work done by Jesus Christ alone. This repentance was a key word that was lost in the understanding of the people. Repentance was riddled throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament, but yet it was a foreign term to those in the era and the age of the church in 1517. So we now understand that word as being one of the common statements of John the Baptist and Jesus himself. And yes, even repentance as far back as is in the prophets of the Old Testament. But it was also the message of the apostles and the early church that were called to repent, to have a change of mind and realize who we are as sinners and our need of God himself. As we go into the rest of these uh, uh, 95 theses, you'll, you'll see that, that there's much that comes off of this understanding of repentance, but also comes off the understanding of what the word faith means. So today, we're going to be looking at what it means to be justified by faith alone. And it really begins in this 95 theses as he begins to address the issue of indulgences. Now, you will not see in this 95 points in any place this phrase, justification by faith alone. You'll see that in Luther's writings in other places, but not in the 95 Theses. But you see it inherently talked about when he addresses the issue of indulgences. Now, what are indulgences? In the early part of the church, once it became a part of the centrality of the Roman government, this idea of the church being one place across the world, led from Rome, they came up with this concept of indulgence, which said that if there's an opportunity for you to pay money to move a soul that is stuck in purgatory and move it from purgatory to heaven or to be in the place where God is for eternity. Well, there's a couple things in that definition to point out. First of all, you're not going to find the concept of purgatory really in Scripture. There's some things that you could possibly get from that, but it's even in extra-biblical sources, not from Scripture alone. And so you got that issue, but then this idea of paying money to move a soul that is stuck here, that is no longer here on this earth, that is stuck in this purgatory, this in-between heaven and hell idea, that they can be moved by the giving of those who are still alive on earth. Well, if you were a father or son 
uh, or father or mother of a child who was very rebellious, did not live a life that showed any signs of God, and you were concerned for their soul once they had passed from this earth, then likely you'd become a fairly significant giver to be able to pay for that son or daughter to move from here to there, to move from purgatory towards heaven. So if you could imagine, money came in by the droves. And then the, the idea of indulgence kind of took on a greater meaning. Because think about it. If you're paying for the souls of those that you love that are already dead to move them from purgatory to a place of, that is with God, then you got to be, begin to think, well, if I die, if I die, who's going to pay for me to get from here to there. Because I know my family, they're a bunch of cheapskates. They're not going to pay up. And so if you don't want to worry about how well your family does when you're not there to pay you from here to there, then you might want to pay ahead. So then they start offering letters of indulgences. And so that it created an opportunity then for people to start accumulating letters that can move somebody from here to there, but doing so ahead of time. Now, the funny thing of it is, is you got to think, okay, so you're given a letter of indulgence. You can't take it with you when you die, so how do you show God, I have this letter, you got to let me in. But those are other kind of thoughts on my part that aren't really necessary for this teaching. But when you begin to think about it, the whole idea seems a little strange. Now, it's strange to you and I because most of us have grown up with the Bible in our homes, with access to the scriptures, with having heard teaching in English, reading the Bible in English, and you know the concept of indulgences is strange to scripture. We can challenge the concept because we know. But if you're a people that had been sitting under teaching that was merely Latin, and only had the Bible in Latin, and you did not know Latin, and you get told by the priest that you can move somebody who's passed from the, into death already to move them from purgatory to heaven, then you're in. Because if you love somebody, you want to move them from there. And then, of course, it's like, well, if that's helpful, then I want to pay up front for myself and get myself from here to there. Upon the backs of this teaching, the cathedrals of Europe and the Vatican and Rome were built. Those are the most expensive structures in the world. Took hundreds of years to build, all upon the teaching that says, you can pay to move somebody from here to there, and God will honor it. It's up to the priest to tell you how much of a letter of indulgence you need to pay for. Maybe it's based on the way they lived, or maybe by the influence you had, Regardless, it was a case that you could literally pay to force God's hand to welcome you into the kingdom of heaven. This phrase became common among the English-speaking churches back this long ago. And it was this phrase that also Luther spoke and said in Theses number 27, when he says this, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That preaches. Not really, does it? I mean, think about it. As soon as you hear the coins go in the coffers, and boy, they, they would bring the big coins and throw them in, and it was like, oh, that pleases God. And so now souls are being released from purgatory into the arms of God. God needed their money, didn't he? If you read number 27 of Luther's 95 points, you will know that this phrase 
also was in Germany as well. And he was not pleased with what was being done. And then Luther in Theses number 28 says this. He says, The result of one's own eternal destiny is in the hands of God alone. Is in the hands of God alone, not in the merits of a purchased indulgence or in the intercession or act of a priest. Let me say it again. The results of one own eternal destiny, whether you end up in heaven or you end up in hell, the results of that are not in the hands of a priest or in the merits of the person, but rather than the hands of God alone. That's number 28. Number 32, he goes on to say this, and one who believes that indulgence letters has saved them, has actually condemned themselves and also those who teach such ideas. Is Luther mincing his words? Because literally what he just said is that not only is it true that only God alone can cause somebody to go from here to there. It's on the merits of God, not on the merits of man. But he says that anyone who trusts in that indulgence as a means of faith and to get them from here to there, they have just condemned themselves because their faith is misplaced. And he says, and this is where I'm saying with the mincing of words, and he says, and anybody who teaches such a concept is condemned as well. So while I do believe that Luther was trying to see the church, the Catholic church of his day, be able to experience a revival, he literally just picked a fight with the Pope himself. He is looking at this and saying, you have condemned yourself by leading people to think that their faith can be rooted in their money in regards to right relationship with God versus trusting in the work of God alone. Now, we can pick at this because we have had access to the scriptures. And fortunately, even in this day, that, that the Catholic Church now prints their word in English. And the Pope created that edict back in the 1960s. So now it's no longer that way. But during this season of time in the church, the word was withheld from the people. And therefore, they were ignorant to be able to push back on such a teaching. Well, let's look at Scripture Let's see what it actually says in regards to this idea that justification or being made right with God cannot be accomplished through money, but rather by faith alone. But in order to do that, we got to keep going back to the beginning and build a picture. So some of these verses were shared last week when we talked about repentance. We begin with Romans chapter 3, verse 23. So if you have your Bibles open, we're going to be in Romans here a little bit. So Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. We made that case last week. Man is not inherently good or righteous. Man is inherently corrupted and depraved at its beginning. And yes, there's desires. There's, God created us, so there's desires to be good, but we usually default to sin on almost every action. We are selfish, and we do things out of rebellion naturally. Even the best of us are very rebellious. And so in this passage, it's saying all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Turn over a couple pages, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of that sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So 
this idea that all of us are, are sinners. We begin there, and, and then we can, as a result of that sin, have earned death. That's what a wage is. We've earned death. But then the conjunction of but, there is a gift that is from God that will provide eternal life. So death is the punishment, but life is the opportunity. But in this, there's rooted a lot of teaching in Romans 6.23 to be understood. First of all, in this understanding that, that we have earned death. You see, when Adam and Eve were created in the garden, they were created actually to live forever. You go back and read, when God responded to the fact that they had made an heir and they had sinned, he says, we got to get them out of the gardens so they don't eat of the tree of life and live forever as a sinful being. You see, they were created to live forever, and the curse was going to be that they were now going to experience death, and they did so with the very next generation, because the first, sin, or first death situation was when Cain killed his brother Abel, Adam and Eve's sons, and it was over an issue of sacrifice and, and an offering for God himself, and, and so Cain didn't like uh, that his uh, sacrifice wasn't accepted as much as what Abel's was, so he killed, and the first death penalty has now happened. And then going on, you see that death begins to reside in all of us, and, and the years become younger and younger that death is experienced. That was never God's intention, but that is the result of sin. So that sin, that sin, it becomes a death penalty for you and I. And then that great conjunction, but the gift of God being that of grace, that gift, it is a gift given to you that is not based on your merits, but rather based on the fact of a generous God. He looks upon you, even though you're a sinner, he looks upon you with compassion and love. And so he offers you a gift, not based on anything you've done, but a gift because of merely loving you. And then that gift becomes the opportunity for eternal life through one source. The gift is given because of the source of Jesus Christ saying his son becomes the way and the opportunity for one to experience life as opposed to experiencing the death penalty that was ascribed to us all. So you have Romans 3.23 saying all of us to sin. You have Romans 6.23 saying we have earned death penalty as a result of that sin. Then there's Romans chapter 5 verse 8. So turning back a page, Romans 5 verse 8. And it says that while you are still sinners. Christ died for you. So while we were still sinning, no merits. Again, keep in mind what he's saying is you are still sinning and Christ died for you. He didn't die for you once you started figuring out how to get right. He died for you so you can become right. So Christ, while you were still sinners, died for you. One of the best ways to understand the picture of that is to look at the time when Jesus was actually hanging on the cross. If you have not studied that day in a while, I would encourage you to maybe in your own personal time tonight in the Word, look at the things that Jesus said and did while on the cross. And what he did and said was usually related to compassion to those who were beating him, mocking him, or in charge of his crucifixion. So while they were mocking him, Christ died for that person. While they were hammering the, the nails into his wrists and down into his feet, he was dying for them. 
while they were saying and, and mocking the idea that he said he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and will be the Messiah, even those who said that, Jesus was dying for them even then. You see this by even how he handled those moments when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he's dying for them even though they weren't right. They weren't righteous at all. In fact, they were sinning as worse of a sin as you could possibly do by mocking the Son of God. Yet he still died for them. You see the thief on the cross who has no opportunity whatsoever to make right himself before Jesus and be able to deserve the gift he was about to be given. Yet Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And just so you know, that thief was also mocking Jesus hours earlier. So you have a mocker who has a change of heart probably by observing what Jesus is doing on that cross and how he's responding to the mockers. And he realizes, oh my goodness, he truly is what he says he is. He has a change of heart and shouts down the other thief and says, he's done nothing while we deserve to be up here. And then he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, would you remember me in your kingdom? And Jesus does not remind him of his sin that he just accomplished a few hours earlier by mocking him. No, he looks right at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, if you would want to turn there. Again, some of these verses we used last week. But we're building a picture as what Luther is doing here. So verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So we're saved by grace through faith. So grace being you're given a gift you did not earn, you did not earn it, you didn't work for it. It's a gift of grace given to you. And by faith, you trust in that gift. You trust in it. And therefore, there is no works in the part of salvation of a person being reconciled from sin to righteousness with God. Being reconciled from the death penalty that sin brings to being life with God for eternity. There is no works, none, None that can be bragged about or boasted over by a human being before God. It is merely a work of grace by God alone through his son, Jesus Christ. Stated right there. But again, if I speak in Latin and you had a Latin text, you would not know that it, your works mean nothing in the sense of being able to earn salvation. It is a nothing path. It will not provide you any help. Now I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 4. So again, Luther's building a picture here. He's saying, you know, this idea of indulgences that you can, you can pay to move a soul from here to there to be with God forever. And you can pay ahead of time and hold these letters of indulgence for yourself to be able to move you from here to there. Look what Romans 4 verse 5 says. It says, however, to the one who does not work, 
yet trusts in God to justify the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. Let me go it slower. That is a significant piece in our understanding of this idea of justification by faith alone. So say it again. However, to the one who does not work, in other words, I am not going to do anything to try to earn my salvation. I am going to trust that this message that says God has worked on my behalf. I will trust in that alone. So it's saying to the one who does not work but trusts God to justify him, they are the one whose faith is credited as righteous. So the one who does not work to appease God and to earn salvation, but trusts in the work of the cross that Jesus did alone, that's the person that God looks upon and their faith looks upon as being righteous, fully clean, heir of the kingdom of heaven. So this righteousness is not to be understood as changing them internally but, and making them morally perfect, for then it would be an act of works on their behalf. Rather, this righteousness was imputed upon them. In other words, faith in Christ's work makes the ungodly righteous in his sight. So what you have here is this righteousness that God is, has as his standard to be in his presence forever. That righteousness is not something that is worked towards. It's not something that is paid for by a human being, but rather it is something that as soon as somebody trusts in the work of God, God then sees them as righteous. Even though you and I know we're still fallen beings, we know we still have the struggle with sin, God looks at us as righteous. That's an amazing thought. That God, when he sees me, even though I know I still sin, and, and, and I try to work against that sin in my life, but God still sees me as righteous, even though I still fail. Luther makes this comment, he says, that is why faith alone makes someone just and fulfills the law. You see, up to the cross, it was the law that somebody would, would try to make sure they were right with God. And that's why they had to sacrifice animals along the way and do righteous deeds. But in the cross, that was all made perfect. And therefore, we have faith alone in that. And that will justify us and fulfill the law's requirements. Luther also says this, this one and firm rock, which we call the doctrine of justification, is the chief article of the whole Christian doctrine, which comprehends the understanding then of all godliness. All right, it's getting a little deep here, but, but he's saying that literally this idea of justification by faith alone, in other words, faith in the work of God alone, that is the core principle, the key doctrine of understanding our salvation in any kind of manner. You have to begin there. That is faith in Christ's work alone to be able to understand how does one get saved? How is one ever to be, go from sinner in the eyes of God to being righteous in the eyes of God? It is not by the merits or work or money of anyone. It is purely by the work that God provided through his son, Jesus Christ, alone. And that is the key doctrine that, according to Luther, for understanding our faith at all. 
So then, that leads to a natural set of questions for me. One of those questions being, if it is true that the key doctrine of salvation is justification by faith alone, then I want to know, then what's the ramifications of that belief within the whole paradigm of understanding God at all? And what is the ramifications of that belief in understanding who I am in the eyes of God at all? So there are four primary uh, uh, ramifications of this belief about justification by faith alone. I need you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So it's just to the right a little bit after Romans. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to read verse 9. It says this, and it's Jesus speaking. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is saying within the context that Jesus is saying, my grace, the work I'm doing on your behalf that you have not earned, it is being done as a gift. My grace is sufficient. And that term sufficient meaning it's enough. What I'm doing for you, which you have not earned, you've not paid for, I've paid for it, I've earned it, is sufficient. It's enough. You don't need to do anything else. Stop right there. It's enough. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. Turn to the right. It's towards the end of your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. And it says this. It says, and by that will being the will of God. By that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So you have the words of Jesus back in Romans and it said, or in 2 Corinthians saying, my work, my grace is sufficient. It's enough. And then you have in the writer with the book of Hebrews saying that listen, the holiness that you and I are experiencing, it was done by the work of God, and it's a work that is once and for all work. No other effort is needed. Because in the history of the Jewish faith, they had to sacrifice annually to be able to have those sins covered temporally. And they had to do a lot of things to make sure that they were able to approach God. They had to go through all kinds of things for purification just to meet God. All of that goes away because of one act of grace, one work by Jesus Christ alone that was sufficient, a once and for all sacrifice so that we can be reconciled to God. So the first ramification is purely this. It's enough. It's enough. The, the gift of God through the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient. It's enough. Nothing else needed. That's the first ramification. Secondly, uh, and you don't have to turn here, but it's in Isaiah chapter 64, uh, verse 6. And it says this. It says, All of us who have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. That's a declaration from a prophet in the Old Testament saying, listen, anything we try to do to think that creates merit or standing before God is like a filthy rag. 
Paul in the New Testament says the same thing where he says that our righteous acts, our works trying to earn favor with God are like garbage. Now that's the safest English term for what's actually in the Greek. He would be using a much more profane term in our language and trying to say just how God feels about us trying to do righteous acts to make ourselves look good before God and earn some kind of merit. But we'll just use the word garbage for the sake of my job and for you as listeners. So basically, God does not hold back in the Old Testament or New Testament to say, listen, your righteous acts cannot accomplish what is necessary to be reconciled to me. So if you say this phrase like, I'm trying to have faith in God, I'm trying to be right with God, I'm trying dot, 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 fill it in the blank however you want, and I can tell you already, you do not understand the work of God. What God did was enough. Trying is not a part of the vocabulary of God. He wouldn't say, try harder. No, he's saying, I did a once and for all sacrifice that is sufficient. So the ramifications are, Christ's work is sufficient. And secondly, ours doesn't make a hill of beans in the eyes of God. He does not care what you try to do to try to earn favor with him. He looks at the work of Christ on the cross on your behalf to see you as righteous. The third uh, piece and the ramification of this idea about justification by faith alone is found in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. So I want you to turn over there, and it's in the middle of the, Old, of the New Testament. So in Galatians chapter 2, it's to the right of Romans, it's to the left of Hebrews where we were. So in between, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. And quite frankly, I could have preached this entire sermon out of this one verse alone. Look what it says. Verse 16 of chapter 2. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Keep in mind, the writer of this is a Pharisee. Paul himself, who had done a lot of things to earn favor before God. He fasted regularly. He studied regularly. He removed himself from society regularly so that they could have their holy moments with God. And then they would go out publicly and pray long prayers to impress the people and to impress God by their holiness. And yet he himself is saying, Anybody who seeks the justification of by works of the law is still dead to God. It is only by faith in the work of Christ alone that anyone can be justified in the eyes of God. So the ramifications are, the work of Christ on the cross is enough. Our works mean nothing to God. They do not accomplish anything in regards to our salvation and being made right or holy before him. It means nothing. It's just garbage. And thirdly, that we are justified only by faith before God. Faith in the works of Christ alone. And then lastly, the ramification that I believe is important to read is found in Romans chapter 10, and this is where we'll end. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. And it says this, 
Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So everything about the law that was about merit and doing certain things, he's saying that, that, that Christ is the culmination. He's the fulfillment of it all. And everyone then who believes in the work of Christ and puts their faith and trust in that work, in that work alone, they are made righteous. They are made righteous. They are looked at as holy, perfect, and capable of coming into the presence of God. Not by their own merits, but by the merit of one, Jesus Christ alone. Within this context of everything that I've just shared and those ramifications, Luther also says something in what is called his articles, or the Smalcate-called articles that were written after the 95 Theses, and he says this, the first and chief article is this, Jesus Christ, our God and Lord, died for our sins and raised again for our justification. He alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All have sinned and are justified freely without their own works and merits by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, in his blood. This is necessary to believe. This cannot otherwise be acquired or grasped by any work, law, or merit. Therefore, it is clear and certain that this faith alone justifies us. Now, Many of us try hard still, even though you've heard this message maybe before where it's like, yes, faith in Christ is what saves me. Somehow within our hardworking society of Lancaster County and within a county that, that draws people to tour our county based on those who think rightness before God means you ride a horse to church versus coming in a car. It is just part of our culture that says works earns rightness before God. Some of us have lived under that teaching in our lives, and it's hard to get rid of it. But the reality is this. The work of the cross was sufficient, period. Anything you try to do to make yourself right before God, using the word try, has already caused you to misunderstand the gospel. It is enough. Have faith in the work of God being able to cover what you've done wrong. Have faith in the work of God to cover the fact that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Have faith in God that the work he did actually provides for you hope for eternal life. Faith alone in that work is where rightness before God is experienced. It is hard. It is difficult being in the church, especially in Lancaster County, and not let the subtleties of law creep in. We are saved by grace, through faith, not by works, so that no one, no one can boast. We now go to the table where we celebrate the work of Christ. Faith in the work of of Christ alone is where we find salvation, which is why we celebrate the table. I love the fact when we were outlining this sermon series that justification by faith alone fell on the Sunday we would participate in communion. We're going to this table as body of believers, 
None of us have more merit than another to be able to participate in this. But the one thing that combines us all into the family of God that can share the same family table is the fact that we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And that gives us the freedom to participate together. So if you have given your life to Jesus Christ and you have faith in his work alone, not in your own merits, then you are a part of the family of God and therefore we welcome you to participate with this church, this family, even if this isn't where you regularly attend. You're allowed to participate with us. All we ask is that you wait and we participate in it together. If you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, and you've never had faith in his work, you can even right now, in the privacy of your own heart, cry out to God and acknowledge yourself as a sinner and say, God, I recognize I can't make myself right. I've been trying, and I realize now it's faith in your work alone as being sufficient. You can cling to that and declare that, and even now you can become born again, born into this family and can participate with us. We would welcome that. And the cool thing is, we read last week in Scripture that there is a huge party in heaven for every soul that repents and cries out to the work of God found in Jesus Christ. So if you choose to repent and to let your life be changed and transformed by his work, you too can celebrate with us now while the angels in heaven celebrate over your salvation. Do you realize the privilege that we have right here as the family of God? This is a blessing that regardless of tribe, tongue, or nation, or where you're born in the United States, or what family heritage you might have, it doesn't matter the past, whether it be the most unrighteous past or the most righteous of past. We're all in need of the same saving work, and we all have the need to just declare one faith. And that is the privilege of this table. So in honor of what Jesus said that night where he said, when he held up the bread and he broke it before him, he said, this is my body which is for you. Take it and remember what I've done for you. We do so now together. I think it would be appropriate to use the language of today's sermon as we consider drinking this cup. This is the blood of a new covenant, which was sufficient. It was enough to cover over anything we've ever done, have done, and will possibly do. It's enough to be righteous before God. So his work, his sacrifice, we trust in by faith. Let's take together. Jesus, we glorify you. You were obedient to death, even death on the cross, because of the motive of love. The Father loved us enough that he, the, the two of you came up with this plan of, of how to redeem us and to reconcile us back to you. And the fact that you were willing to do this and to suffer on our behalf is incredible to me. So we honor you and say thank you. And we trust in your work as being enough. Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Amen. So, if you are considering 
living by faith maybe for the first time and you'd like to talk to somebody about it because you need more understanding, we'll have people that are gathered underneath the cross over here that will be glad to talk with you or pray about anything that's upon your heart. But if you have for the first time already declared in faith, Jesus, your work's enough and I trust in it, there has been already a celebration in heaven over your change of heart and change of mind and we celebrate with you. We would encourage you to tell us and to share with us uh, that you've made that decision or share with the one who brought you because we want to celebrate with you here on this earth. For those of you that have known Christ when you walk in that room and you're part of the family of God, let us not be fooled into thinking that our righteous acts that we did yesterday mattered a hill of beans to God. However, we are given the opportunity to live out that faith truly as a changed person. Yes, we are called. A true faith is one, as we shared last week. A true faith shows evidence that it's a life being changed. We don't do it for the sake of merit. We do it because we are indeed being changed because we have sincere faith in Christ. We are called to become more and more like him every day. And so as that, we are truly that light. As I've been speaking, we are the light of the world. A city that is on a hill that cannot be hidden. And the source of that light is Jesus Christ. When people ask why, you can say, it's nothing I've done. It's all the work of Jesus. Let that be the words upon your mouth. Let the actions of your faith show to other people that we are truly, truly blessed people because we have a relationship with Jesus. Having said that, I send you out as saved ones, saved by grace through faith alone. Amen.